And thirdly, we'll turn in our Bibles to in the, in the New Testament as well. Uh, after the Gospels, you'll find there the letters of St. Paul, and turning to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. So St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. And uh, reading down through verse 28 this morning. Here's what God says to us. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, the apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, meaning they've died believing in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God uh, to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says it being the psalm, all things are put in subjection. It is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. 
When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be also subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Again, loved ones, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You should also have in that bulletin this morning a sermon notes page if you'd like to take notes and follow along. It'll help you out this morning. Uh, the gospel passage is printed out. So there's a quick little summary, uh, some points and uh, some little spots for you to write in some, uh, some phrases and so forth to help you uh, follow along this morning. Well, there's an Easter article that I read uh, by a pro- professor of homiletics. That's a, a preaching professor at a seminary. Uh, in our land, and it says this. He says this, the the, the author. This progressive Christian does not believe that the dead body of Jesus actually rose up on Easter Day. Despite the millions of words written and read, the thousands of hymns composed and sung, The deaths of scads of lilies, these poor lilies this morning. And the earnest and heartfelt hopes of countless believers that Jesus' historical resurrection assures their own. I simply do not accept that the narrative of the resurrection occurred in any historical way. It is for me just that a narrative, a story designed by the writers of the gospel to present God's affirmation of a new way for all of us who do do believe. That story is the true and literal example of what God had in mind for humanity from the beginning of time. Jesus did, or Jesus didn't, rise from the dead. That's the question for us this morning. And as we read these passages of Scripture, either Jesus rose from the dead and everything he said is true, or he didn't. And everything he said was a lie. Everything Paul said was a lie. Everything I'm about to say is a lie. It's all or nothing with Jesus. I'm willing to stand here and say that if Jesus Christ didn't rise again, like the Apostle says, then we're fooling ourselves. But he did rise again. He did rise again. And I'm willing to be called a liar to say that he rose again from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. And we see the Apostle Paul in that letter to the Corinthians. The Apostle puts it all on the line. He goes all in the resurrection, doesn't he? If Christ has not been raised, he says twice. He's willing to put everything on the line for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he's not been raised, he says, if the dead are not raised, if Christ has not even been raised, then our preaching is in vain. It's false. It's futile. It's vanity. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins this morning, he says. If Christ hasn't been raised, then all those who trust in Jesus at their death and who are then buried in the ground, they've perished. 
And that is the end. If Christ hasn't been raised, we, St. Paul says, we Christians are of all people most to be pitied. Because we base our entire life upon a falsehood. And therefore, he goes on to say in verse 32, if Christ has not been raised, go ahead and just eat and drink, because what? Tomorrow we all die. If Jesus hasn't been raised, just go ahead and live your life. Don't worry. Be happy. Eat, drink. Tomorrow you are going to die. And that's it. That's it. Just a bunch of carbon that's going to be put back into the earth. It's going to be recycled. That's the, that's the new fad here in California. We can recycle our bodies at death, can't we? What does it matter? I mean, there is nothing after death. After all, we, we are assured constantly by everyone around us. There's no such thing as resurrection. But you see, Paul can put it all on the line. And you and I can put it all on the line. And I, and myself, will stake my internal existence on this very reality that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead because the Christian faith is a public religion. Its claims are falsifiable or they're verifiable. We do not have a religion like Islam or Mormonism where we have to believe what one man says happened to him. And no one else was around to see it. But we have to believe it. Or else. We don't have a religion like Buddhism or Hinduism. Which are not even historically based religions. They are philosophies. And you either follow the philosophy or you don't. If you don't, it's fine. Our religion makes historically verifiable, verifiable or falsifiable claims. About God creating the world. Time. Space. Matter about you and I being sinners in need of reconciliation before God and with God. Our religion makes claims about Jesus of Nazareth being the Savior of the world. The Bible says he lived perfectly, he died sacrificially, he was raised gloriously for us. And everything that we say, St. Paul says, everything stands or falls with the resurrection of Jesus. It all stands and falls with the resurrection of Jesus. If Christ has not been raised, then, as you see there, Paul says five things. Our preaching's in vain, your faith's in vain, it's futile, you're still in your sins, and so forth. So go ahead, eat, drink, tomorrow we die. But the Christian faith says things that are verifiable or falsifiable. And here the apostle tells us, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. It's all or nothing with Jesus Christ. It's all or nothing with Scripture. It's all or nothing with the Christian faith. Now, now people hear that, and of course, of course, that's going to sound to many uh, uh, unbelieving American ears. Well, that's just that's fundamentalism. Or to use that line from from Star Wars, you know, only Sith deal in absolutes, right? As Anakin Skywalker there says, you know, you're you're either for me or against me, using Jesus' words. And Obi Wan says, only Sith deal in absolutes. You know, that's fundamentalism. 
That's the Christian faith. That's the Christian faith. At least, at least 11 of the 12 apostles died for this reality of the resurrection. Men like Peter, crucified upside down in mockery of Christ. They were put to death for this. They staked it all on the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see there uh, in Corinthians, you can see there where where the apostle gives us uh, three bases, three reasons for the fact that Christ has been raised, as he says there in verse number 20. Now, again, the objection is, and you might even be thinking this, well, you know, how are you going to prove to me the resurrection of Jesus Christ by using the Bible? The Bible says he was raised, and now you're going to use the Bible to prove that he was raised. That's a, that's a circular argument. Well, of course I'm going to use the Bible. I'm a Christian. I believe that God has revealed himself uh, throughout the scriptures. I believe that he's raised up his son, of course. But I would also add to that that Jewish rabbis, Roman historians, men like Josephus and Tacitus, apocryphal books, non-Christian philosophers, all wrote in the ancient times, in times uh, very soon after these things happened, they wrote and they said that Jesus really existed. He really died. And they, of course, didn't accept the resurrection, but they said Christians believed that he was raised. The tomb was empty. I mean, if he really wasn't raised, they, of course, gave money, as Matthew 28 says, to, to concoct the story that his disciples came at night and stole the body. Well, how could they do that with Roman centurions there? But they came up with stories to try to disprove it. But you would think that if he really didn't rise again, that the tomb was still full and his body was still there, that they could just trot masses of people to that tomb and say, there's the tomb. It's still there, but they didn't. They couldn't. So the historical evidence for Jesus' existence, his death, and I would even add his resurrection, it's at minimum the same, as, uh, if not more, historically verifiable than the existence of Julius Caesar. As far as the reliability of the Bible goes, there are more than a thousand times more manuscript data for the New Testament than for the average ancient Greek or Roman author. A thousand times more. And the existing manuscripts that we have of, from those authors are, are uh, the authors of uh, Greek and Roman authors and historical figures like Julius Caesar. Those manuscripts are, are no earlier than 500 years after the time that they live. So hundreds of years later. For the New Testament, they're just mere decades. And these are the manuscripts that we have. Mere decades between the events and the, and the writing of those events. 5,700 Greek New Testament manuscripts, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, over a million known references to the New Testament in ancient writers. These things happened. These things happened. The Lord has risen indeed, as we said. Well, how does Paul prove that? That Christ is, in fact, raised from the dead. He tells us, first of all, the evidence of prophecy. The evidence of prophecy. Now, Corinth, you're right here to to the Corinthians. Corinth was the modern equivalent of Las Vegas. And these believers in Jesus had turned their backs on ancient philosophy, Roman religions, and for some of them, Judaism. They did that to live for Christ 
in the middle of an ungodly society like Las Vegas. Why? Because Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, verse 4 says in 1 Corinthians 15. He was raised in accordance with the scriptures. Again, ancient manuscripts say these things are going to happen, and then they happen. The evidence of fulfilled prophecy. Children, imagine tracing your family tree. I think I've given this illustration before, but imagine tracing your tree, your family tree. Uh, maybe you have to do it for, for, a, for a class uh, project, for a history project or some kind of a, of, of a class project. And you've got to make a little tree. And there's a trunk, of course, and that's like your oldest ancestors. And then it all springs up and there's a, 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 there, there are roots, there's a trunk, there are branches and little branches coming off those and so forth. And you make that family tree. And let's say that you can trace your family tree. You're, you're this little branch way over here. And let's say you can trace it really far down, say 100 years in the past. Maybe 500 years in the past. Let's say even 1,000 years in the past. And imagine that while you are doing this, say you're on Ancestry.com, you, you discover that there are ancient letters from your most ancient forefathers and foremothers from a thousand years ago, that there are these ancient letters from these several ancestors and that they lived in different times throughout that tree and in all kinds of different places on the face of the earth. And imagine that all those letters, a thousand years, five hundred years, even a hundred years, all those letters describe a descendant who is going to come and eventually is going to be on that tree. Imagine that. And imagine that all those letters tell you where he or she, this descendant, was going to be born, what kinds of things this descendant uh, uh, is, is going to do, what kind of death he or she was even going to die. And even in these letters, your ancient forefathers and foremothers said that this descendant is going to die but be raised to life. Imagine that. That's the Old Testament. That's what the Old Testament does for Jesus. It's his family tree. It's his genealogy. And it says things as far back as as, as uh, we've seen uh, many moons ago in our sermons through the book of Genesis, it says things such as Abraham going to sacrifice his son Isaac. Why was Abraham willing to do that? There's a movie out now, you know, uh, about, uh, the, about the life of Abraham and Isaac. Why was Abraham willing to go? You know, and people mock and, and make fun of the Christian faith and, and the Jewish faith, and they say, you know, that's just an example of the blind leap in the darkness that all Christians must follow. I mean, how can, God, how can you follow a God that would call you to sacrifice your very own son? Because Abraham believed that that same God could raise his son from the dead. That's why he did it. He was foreshadowing what was going to come. That there would be a greater son, the final son of Abraham, who was going to bless the whole world, and that he was going to die, and that he was going to be raised. 2,000 years before Jesus existed, Abraham did that. A thousand years we read in, in Psalm 16. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David said those words. Now what's wrong with those words? 
David said to God, he prayed to God, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the grave. You will not allow my body to see corruption. What's wrong with what David said? What was that? He did die. And he was buried. Did he rise again? Can you go now, to this very day, to go see the tomb of David? Absolutely you can. He's still there. His bones are still there. He wasn't saying it about himself. In fact, Peter told the Jews in the first century, the day of Pentecost, his tomb is with us to this day. He could have been speaking of himself. He was speaking as a prophet of someone to come. A greater king, a greater David, an anointed one. 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah spoke words of hope to a devastated people. The Israelites had sinned against God. God had sent the Assyrians against them, and later on the Babylonians would come against them. Uh, they were wiped out the face of the planet almost. They took them into exile. Just a small remnant. But yet God said to the prophet Isaiah that he was going to keep his promise to David. Another promise that he made to David, that he was going to have a, that David would always have a king upon the throne, a, a son, an heir, an inheritor, a descendant upon his throne. But how can that be when the people of God aren't even in the land? There's no king. Isaiah called this the sure mercies of David. It's because the prophet was saying that there was a greater one to come. God would keep his word. At the same time, Isaiah said those words, Hosea preached to Israel as they were out in exile in all kinds of foreign lands, longing for their return to the promised land. And the prophet said, Come, let us return to the Lord, that is to repent. For he's torn us that he might heal us. He struck us down. He will raise uh, and, uh, and, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. He was speaking of something greater. Something greater to come. Because three days after Hosea wrote the, uh, prophesied those words, that didn't happen. He was speaking of a son, a savior, who was going to come. Jesus himself, in fact, I've mentioned the Old Testament, I've mentioned the Apostle Paul, but what about Jesus? What about Jesus? Did Jesus ever predict his own death and resurrection? Did he? He did, didn't he? The greatest prophecies of all are his own predictions. All four Gospels record Jesus predicting his death and his resurrection. So if, if he was just a prophet or a good man or a great leader or, or a political leader or an insurrectionist against the Romans and so forth, it would be very easy for him to prophesy his death and that could have very easily come true as a Jewish man trying to revolt against the Romans. I mean, anyone could have done that. That would be an obvious reality that you would stand up and try to stand against the Romans and you would say, I'm going to be killed for, for this faith that I'm preaching. I'm going to be killed for my revolution. Of course. And many of them were put to death. There were all kinds of Messiah claimed to be, to be Messiahs and claimed to be leaders of Israel. And they were all put to death. In fact, there was one of them in prison the very moment Jesus was being arrested and, and tried, and they let him out. Jesus said this, The Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men. They will kill him. Easy enough to say that, but then Jesus says this, and he will be raised on the third day. 
The Son of Man, Luke's Gospel says, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day, what? Raised. I lay down my life. Now listen to this. It's not that Jesus speaks in a passive voice. The Son of Man will be raised. He, in the first person, says this. John's Gospel, chapter 10. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. What a claim. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. That's audacity. To claim that you are going to lay your life down in death and that you will raise yourself from the dead. Well, you know, it's because he really didn't die on the cross, some say. You know, he, he just passed out. He fainted. The soldier comes with a spear, the gospel tell, story tells us, and spears him, and water and blood come out, evidencing his death. He was dead as a doornail. His brain waves ceased. No electricity anymore in his body. His heart stopped beating. His lungs stopped inhaling. He was dead. As dead as dead can be. He was dead. I have authority to raise it up, he said. There was a time, in fact, when he was in the temple and he did not like what he was seeing there in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. And he began in a holy rage, Jesus, to throw the tables upside down. They were, they were selling unauthorized sacrifices, animals that were not fit for sacrifice, and they were jacking the prices up. And they were doing ungodly things in the temple precincts. And so Jesus upturns the temple. He takes whips and he whips out the animals and sets them free. What sign do you show us for doing these things? By what authority can you do this? The Jews asked. And Jesus said, destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. Now they responded to him by saying this. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in just three days? The gospel writer John says he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So to make such stupendous claims Jesus was either a religious nut, a lunatic, a bald-faced liar with a really good poker face, or the Lord of the universe, and the Lord over you, whether you like it or not. Which one is it? The second evidence the apostle gives us there in Corinthians 15 is the evidence of eyewitnesses. The evidence of eyewitnesses. He mentions there Cephas, Peter, the 12 disciples as a, as a group, 500 believers at one time, James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, all the apostles, and finally Jesus appeared to Paul. He was raised and they saw him. They saw him. Eyewitnesses. Now, to add to that, Paul's little list, a very impressive list, there's also the witnesses that we read about in the gospel story there in Matthew 28, and we read also in Mark 16, Luke 24, 
The Gospels tell us that there were also other eyewitnesses. Whom does Paul not mention there? Specifically, by name. Who do we read about in Matthew 28? The first witnesses. The women, right? The women. Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of James, Salome, Joanna. Why is that so significant? Do you know that a woman's testimony wasn't allowed in court in ancient Judaism? Do you know that? A woman's testimony wasn't allowed in court in ancient Judaism. In fact, Jewish historians like Josephus, he was a Jew who was hired by the Roman Empire to be a historian of the Jews, to to give them uh, a history of the Jews and so forth. Here's what Josephus said, and he's writing a little bit after the the time of Jesus. Let not the testimony of women be admitted on the account of the levity and boldness of their sex. What a chauvinist, right, we might think. The point is, though, that they they mocked uh, a woman's word. Her word meant nothing in ancient Judaism. Her, I, these eyewitnesses, these women, meant nothing if they had been sort of brought on trial as, as evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. The importance is that if Jesus' followers were making Christianity up as this new religion, why would they write, and why would these men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, why would these Jew, uh, mostly Jewish men record in their writings, writing to Gentiles, but especially to Jews, that the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus were women? If they were trying to invent a religion, if they were tr- trying to persuade Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, the last thing you would say amongst the last things you would say, is that the first witnesses that he rose again and kept his promise, and all that he said is true, is to say that, oh, there's a bunch of women who saw him. Their witness meant nothing in the court of law. That's the opposite of what you would do. In fact, that's what they did. Again, showing us the veracity, the truthfulness, the historicity, the reality of the the New Testament. You don't use women's witness as evidence when their witness means nothing unless it really happens that way. And Paul doesn't also mention the witness of the tomb guards. And again, why is that so important? Because Roman law said that a centurion, a Roman soldier, who lost what he was guarding or he left his post guarding a, a, a body in a tomb, guarding a prisoner in prison, or whatever he was guarding. Roman law said that a centurion, a Roman soldier, who lost what he was guarding was to be what? Executed. But at least one of them saw and testified. These eyewitnesses of Jesus 
show us the reality of the resurrection. Now, people have tried to, to argue recently and say, well, you know, you can say that, that the apostles had a sincere religious belief. And that belief, their, their eyewitness and whatever, you know, uh, you can say, well, they were, they, were, they, were, they were sincere and so forth. But what makes their witness and what makes their sincere religious belief any more believable than the sincere religious beliefs of the 9-11 terrorists? Here's the difference. Many people have sincere religious beliefs and they all claim to be telling the truth. We grant that. Here's the difference. These men and women actually saw, touched, spoke with Jesus, and were certain about what they saw, heard, and said to Jesus, and he said to them. A Muslim terrorist lives 1,400 years after the claims of his religion was made, never having seen the prophet never having seen anything that they sincerely believe. These witnesses saw. They were first-hand witnesses. They are not 1,400 years later. It's not just my word that we, 2,000 years later, say Jesus rose again. We are basing our witness upon these eyewitnesses. One Jewish rabbi, in fact, uh, wrote in a book called The Resurrection of Jesus, A Jewish Perspective, uh, this rabbi, who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel, said this. If the defeated and depressed group of disciples overnight could change into a victorious movement of faith based only on auto-suggestion or self-deception without a fundamental faith experience, then this would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection itself. He went on to say this, this Jewish rabbi, I accept the resurrection of Jesus, not as an invention of the community of, of, of disciples, but as an historical event. Even modern contemporary Jewish rabbis who study the evidence conclude that, he, yes, he rose again from the dead. We don't accept his claims of being Messiah, but yes, he rose again as a historical, verifiable fact of human history. Prophecy shows us the resurrection. These eyewitnesses show us the resurrection. And Paul's very own example of a transformed life demonstrate to us the resurrection of Jesus. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. We've been seeing in our morning sermons recently in the book of Acts this very thing. He went to Damascus with letters from the Jewish council to persecute Christians, to arrest them, to put them to death. He stood by the death of Stephen. He approved his stoning to death. I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, he says. Saul of Tarsus was one of the upcoming hip religious Jews the, of, 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 of that strictest party of the Pharisees in the first century. And he described his education as being, quote, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers in the book of Acts. He called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He was as anti-Christ as you could possibly be in the first century. 
He wanted nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth. He did not believe one iota of what Jesus' disciples were saying. Yet because of the resurrection, and the resurrection of Jesus appearing to him, Paul the persecutor became Paul the preacher. Paul the opponent became Paul the apostle. What about you? The power of Jesus Christ's resurrection to transform lives over the past 2,000 years shouldn't and cannot be discounted so lightly. Again, a modern Jewish rabbi, Pinchas Lapida, said this, When this scared, frightened band of apostles, which was just about to throw away everything in order to flee in despair to Galilee, when these peasants, shepherds and fishermen, who betrayed and denied their master and failed him so miserably, suddenly could be changed overnight into a confident mission society, convinced of salvation and able to work with much more success after Easter than before, then no vision or hallucination is sufficient to explain such a revolutionary transformation. What explains it? What explains Saul? What explains Peter and the apostles? What explains the difference, the change for us who embrace Christ today? The difference is Jesus is Lord. His grace is invincible. His power to save everyone who believes cannot be thwarted. And so it's resurrection or nothing. Paul asks us to imagine in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't rise. Imagine if Jesus didn't rise. But the only conclusion he could draw was that, in fact, he did. Because he did, our preaching is not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. We are not in our sins anymore. Those who have faith and uh, who, who die in faith are with the Lord. We are of most human beings to be envied. Because we live this life with fullness in Christ, but yet we have so much more awaiting us. We are of all men most to be envied. Our faith is not just eat, drink, tomorrow we die. Our faith is not just that cope and get through life. We have this life and the life to come. Jesus Christ is alive. We are of all people most to be envied. And because he rose again, he's Lord over our lives. And he commands us as Lord, as King, to turn away from your selfish ways and turn to me, he says. But I have many questions you might be asking. I have so many doubts about these things you might be thinking. What does Jesus say to that? What does he say to that? He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. He says, bring your questions, bring your doubts, bring your sins, drag your struggles along with you and follow me. 
And as you follow him, he will not only change your life and your mind and how you speak and act and so forth, but he will help you understand those doubts and questions and struggles. He will put them in the light of eternity and they'll make, begin to make sense. The ancient theologian Tertullian, great saint of the church, said this, The Son of God was crucified. I am not ashamed because men must needs be ashamed of it. And, and, and the Son of God died. It is by all means to be believed. Because it is absurd. And he was buried and rose again. The fact is certain. Because it is impossible. Let us come with faith this morning to Christ, dragging ourselves to him if we need to, asking him to help us, to lift us up, to raise us to new life, to forgive us of our sins, to change our hearts, to change our minds, to change our lives, to answer our questions, let us come to Jesus Christ. He's been accepting sinners like you for 2,000 years. Let's come to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessing of the good news of Jesus, his life, his death, and his glorious, miraculous, stupendous resurrection. And so we pray that you would fill our hearts with true faith to embrace and to believe this gospel that Christ is in fact raised from the dead and we are of all people most to be envied because of your amazing grace. By the grace of God, we are what we are. And so we ask that you would help us today, enable us today to come to Jesus. And we ask this all in his name and all of God's people say.